Beamer Tire and Auto Repair, now with three locations across the triad in High Point, Greensboro, and our new location in Kernersville. Beamer Tire and Auto offers full-service auto repair, all tire brands, free alignment checks, oil changes, and more. In Kernersville, check out the no-appointment-needed Quick Lube Shop. Check out their thousands of five-star ratings via Google and Yelp. They care because they know that you can go anywhere. So try a shop with a beating heart, not a bottom line. Beamer Tire and Auto Repair. Visit us on Facebook or at BeamerTire.com. And welcome back to a brand new edition, Tuesday edition of Franchise Players. I'm your host, Desmond Johnson. Loaded show today. Last week we were on spring break, so there was a lot of stuff to happen uh, with the pro teams in North Carolina, the Carolina Panthers and the Charlotte Hornets in particular. So I wanted to go and get a, a, a uh, excuse me, I wanted to go get a Panthers expert to ask him some questions about some of the stuff we've seen going on. You know, Sam Darnold was just introduced formally as the Panthers quarterback. Uh, on Monday of this week, bringing in John Ellis, uh, Panthers podcaster. You can follow him on Twitter at One Ellis Place. John, what's going on, brother? I know you've been busy, man. <laughs> well, it's actually One Panther Place, but I, I might start a One Ellis oh, God, Place. I said one Ellis place. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I had that typed in there. I was like, that sounds really good. I'm pretty sure that's what no it worries. is. No worries. One Panther Place. <laughs> it's so, funny, so, so man. Sorry. That's great. It's fine. No, pe- 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 people are going to find my fat head. Desmond, this is fun, man. I'm sorry. We Desmond's been trying to track me down for two or three weeks. We've been trying to connect, man, and I've just had so much stuff going on with family and, and other work stuff. But Desmond, thank you for you, man. I'm looking forward to the talk. Yeah, man. And I trust me, I know how it is. I've got two kids myself dealing with this homeschool nonsense and everything else oh, from the, the remnants of 2020. So I totally got yeah. it whenever something would <laughs> pop up. Um, so let's just get right into it. The Panthers formally introduced new Panthers quarterback Sam Darnold on Monday uh, via virtual press conference. The Panthers traded a 2021 six round pick plus 2022 second and fourth round picks for Darnold. Now that we're about a week or so removed from that trade, what are your thoughts on Sam Darnold and his potential fit in Joe Brady's offense in Charlotte? Well, it's an interesting acquisition, Desmond. You talked about the trade compensation. They only give up a sixth in this year's draft, which I think is good. <clears throat> you know, Billy Marshall and I on our podcast, we talked about this this week, that the downside to that is the back-end compensation next year. We felt that might have been a little heavy, but again, I, I also made the point, so did Billy, that we feel like it's a lot better to judge the compensation at this juncture because we just don't know who Sam Darnold is right now. Um, I, I've looked on the, the tape with Sam. You know, this is what I can tell you. And it's not unlike something else you'll hear out there, but my, my own spin on it would be this, that he is very good outside of structure when things break down because they have broken down a lot there in terms of protection. He knows how to make plays on the run. He's a very good athlete, underrated athlete. Uh, he'll fit well into Joe Brady's system, I think. But what he needs to work on, and this is hopefully some of the coaching that he'll get from Sean Ryan, the quarterback coach, Joe Brady, of course, the offensive coordinator, will be getting protected in the pocket, first of all. That, that gets back to our draft conversation, which I'm sure we'll have. But he's going to have to get better from within the pocket. That's something he struggled with in terms of fumbles, in terms of occasionally throwing that, uh, 
you know, he mentioned he's seen Ghost <laughs> that oh, game yeah. a few years ago, and <laughs> it, it did look like that. The Pats game, he was the <laughs> I mean, it's only 23, so it's going to happen. But some of the picks on tape were, were a little bit questionable. Uh, I think that's a, a product of his own carelessness at times, and he'd probably first tell you that, and that's a developmental thing. But also, you look at the weapons. I mean, he had Robbie Anderson for a minute there, and he made a huge play to him against the Cowboys, threw a dime on a post route. But he lost Robbie early there. Robbie leaves last year, and then, production goes down across the board. So I just think this will be a good opportunity for Sam to get together with Joe Brady, who's got a bright mind, a bright future in this league, with DJ Moore, Christian McCaffrey, Taylor Moten on the right side. You've got John Miller back in the folded guard. And you've also got Robbie Anderson, like I mentioned. Dan Arnold, the six foot ten. Who knows what other weapons will be coming to the draft. So I think, man, a lot like Bridgewater, this is a good audition time. It's not a long-term deal. It's the back end of his rookie deal with a possible fifth-year option. Uh, so for compensation, you know, look, I, I, I don't know yet if it's a good trade or not for Carolina, but I'm optimistic more than I am pessimistic. Is there a strength that Sam Darnold has? Because I know you're you're a huge film junkie. I know that you like to go through film, check guys out, especially when the Panthers bring a guy in. And with a guy like Darnold, who didn't have a whole lot of tape on him because he's only been in the league for three years, is there a strength to Darnold? compared to uh, to Teddy Bridgewater. I know one of the things I used to come down, or still do come down on Teddy, uh, is the whole Teddy check down thing, that it felt like Teddy was yeah. more prone to take the short pass than to, to even try to throw it deep. And we saw that really, in particular, the last three games of the season that the Panthers had, where Teddy just literally cut that part of the field off and didn't even bother to go that direction. Is, is there a strength that Sam Darnold brings to this offense that Teddy couldn't? My feeling on Teddy, just to get to him for a minute, and it's always been this way by looking at Teddy's film, he's always understood his limitations, probably to a little bit of a fault. And that's not to say that he's a timid player, but he's a very structured player. He, he enjoys playing within structure. He does not oftentimes try to throw a ball outside of his comfort zone, which quite honestly would be past 30 yards. Uh, the thing I like about Sam is he's got a little more, uh, I would think, deep ball accuracy from the film I've looked at. Uh, Teddy can do some things nicely outside pocket, too. He sprinted out made some really nice throws to Samuel, to Moore last year, to Robbie, outside of the pocket when things broke down. What I like about Sam, he just feels like he's a little more well-built. He's younger. He hasn't had the history of, of injury trauma that, that Teddy has. Teddy's handled that very well, by the way. Emotionally, he's been a great leader. Uh, he's been a guy that teams rally around every time he stops. Coaches love him. Players love him. But at the end of the day, the limitations, you're right. He favors the shorter routes, probably to a fault for what I'd like to see. And I think it might just be a pepper thing. It might be Scott Fitterer coming in and saying, look, Russell Wilson, the quarterback I was with in Seattle for years, was not afraid to launch the ball vertically. He was not a checkdown artist. So what we need is not Alex Smith part two here. What we need is a quarterback that has a higher ceiling who can make more vertical throws happen. Completion percentage, look, he's under 60%. But one thing I will say, it's a little bit of a Jameis Winston effect. He's going to throw some duds once in a while, but he's going to he's gonna take some shots. And he can throw a really pretty post route, a really nice go route. I saw that on tape. What he's got to do is just, from a mental perspective, just clean up some of the mistakes don't fumble the ball as much, and get a little better from within the pocket. The footwork is a little bit tentative and sloppy at times. 
I don't know if it's being correct or wants to correct. That's a whole thing. <laughs> we got like the Cam Newton. We talked about that for years. You right. can get around that if 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 you overcompensate in other areas. <clears throat> I just think Sam has got that potential, and I trust Scott Fitter. I really do. I, I've talked to a lot of people who know Scott. <clears throat> we talked to Sam Farmer from the LA Times a couple weeks ago. Sam has known Scott since he was in high school. We talked to a person about this. Uh, we also talked to Doug Farrar from USA Today, who has covered the Seahawks for years. And I think they all feel that Scott is just got the right chops for this in terms of evaluating players. I, I think a Marty Herney move uh, compared to a Scott Fitterer move, I'm sleeping easier at night from a football perspective and a contract perspective. Think about what Scott Fitterer move. I'm honestly more satisfied with this than I was with the Bridgewater acquisition. Yeah, I would agree with that. And all the, uh, and we'll go through some of the player acquisitions they've done this offseason in a bit. But I've been really impressed with Fitterer in terms of how they've structured these deals. You mentioned Marty Herney and a guy like um, Hassan Reddick. That would have been like a four-year, $50 million deal <laughs> under Marty Herney. Whereas, absolutely. You know, oh, Fitterer, absolutely. It's like a proven <clears throat> kind of deal, you know. It's almost like they're just doing one-year, two-year deals to young guys that are still hungry. They well, create competition. Real, real, real quick, real, real quick here, just to, and I'll let you finish there. Two people who deserve a lot of credit for that, I think, is Samir Suleiman, the cap guy, who was mentioned today by Matt Rule and has been mentioned throughout, is, is one of the sort of the magicians here in terms of making things work from a cap perspective. They had to climb out of a dead money hole here. They still had Matt Khalil in the books for a while. Luke's yeah. dead cap was atrocious this year from his retirement. They might face the same thing now with Bridgewater. So again, Samir Suleiman, you've got Scott Fitterer, uh, Pat Stewart in the front office. I like the structure. The, the next thing, I, I think you can thank Joe, uh, not Joe Brady, Matt Rule for that. Honestly, mm. Billy and I talked about that too on the pod. That deal probably doesn't get done anywhere else other than Carolina. And that's where relationships and free agency come and play. And you, when you have a relationship with a guy like Reddick, who is a guy that's obviously looked up to you, close in college, you coached him in college, you're going to get him on, I don't want to say a hometown discount, but certainly a, uh, a friendship discount. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on. I think they've done a really good job. Sorry to interrupt there. No, you're good. Got um, on the line with us here, John Ellis, uh, infamous Panther podcaster. You can follow him at One Panther Place on Twitter. Um, let's let's talk draft a little bit because it's right around the corner, literally less than two weeks away yeah. here. Um, even though they signed Sam Darnold, I don't really catch the vibe from them that Sam is entrenched as the starter, especially after listening to the press conference today uh, with Matt and then with Sam coming on. <laughs> Sam seems like he's kind of been told he's going to be in competition maybe not necessarily with teddy bridgewater but with someone if a guy like justin fields is sitting on the board at pick eight and carolina still has their pick at eight do the panthers still you know do they need to pick him would you if uh, justin i don't know fields if i don't know if, if, oh if, if it was me yes absolutely i'm running that card i'm doing a full steve smith four three sprint <laughs> table with that card <laughs> with his name on it uh look I, I don't know if fields will drop i i you know so many people have opinions on these quarterbacks and i i i do my share of film study i try to be a little humble about it and i try to hold a little back because i think some people overstep what they think they know in terms of these evals and i respect mm -hmm. the guy the, the high level guys that do this from the college game the analysts out there like matt bowen greg cosell uh, you know, Stephen Ruiz, guys like that that I follow on Twitter who know 
uh, you know, bets. There's guys like that on Twitter. It just they know what they're looking at. Um, I, I've got the same chops, I think, in terms of understanding what these quarterbacks are all about. But I can't project what Fields is going to be. I nobody knows. Nobody knows. There could be a quarterback like a Kellen or a Davis Mills who ends mm-hmm. up being better than two or three of these first round guys just by virtue of situation, just by virtue of surrounding cast. But I'll say this, yeah. If Justin Fields, who I, I currently have as my second best quarterback in this draft, if I gotta rank people, I hate ranking people, but there you go. I think it to me on my board for my preferences, the athleticism, the ability to do things vertically with that arm, the fearlessness, the toughness uh, that he played against Clemson, many, and, and just making big throws against big-time opponents, rolling through the Big Ten, uh, just unscathed. I know the Northwestern game, I believe it was, caught a little people uh, off guard with his tape, but right. I think other than that, I mean, you just put on that Clemson tape. I talked to a scout recently who was at one of these pro days, and and he'll, he'll tell you right now, the scout told me, you know, again, anonymously here. That's how we work. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was just the best, one of the best tapes he's ever seen uh, from a college player, that Clemson game. Uh, the, that tape against Clemson, it, it looked great on the broadcast. But from a scout's view, he was he was as blown away as we were as fans. And that's uncommon. It's usually a little more critical than we are as fans looking back. But, but this individual who's done this for a long time said, look, that tape against Clemson cemented it for me. He's kind of right there, number two on my list. I agree with this individual. Uh, and with others as well who see Fields is a great fit for San Francisco. But, man, if he slides, Desmond, if he's sitting there at number eight and they don't take him and he goes on to have a Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen uh, type of run here, oh, boy. And Sam Darnold gives you kind of that bridgewater s type of couple of years. That one's going to leave a mark because I don't know if you're going to get a crap like this anytime soon with this many, you know, kind of sure. I don't say surefire bets, but man, there are guys in this top round of this draft that just feel like they're ready to go. Even Mac Jones in and start for, for these teams. So, yeah, I, I think if there's a guy on the board they like, and I would like Fields personally, yeah, I, I'd take him, no doubt. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of you mentioned uh, Lamar Jackson there, and you brought back painful memories of me wanting them to draft Lamar Jackson to sit behind Cam Newton in 2018, I believe it was 2018. They got DJ Moore yep, instead yep. halfway through the first, and it was like Lamar Jackson was this forgotten guy until the end of the first round when the Ravens grabbed, and I was like, man, well, that's going to turn Lamar, into beautifulness yeah. for them. So I wanted to Lamar get him. Slid, uh, Lamar, Lamar slid because a lot. I've got it wrong. A lot of coaches got it wrong. Now, here's what I'll say about Lamar real quickly, that the system limits him, and it also helps him. Greg Roman has done some things to help him in terms of his efficiency, but there's also some limitations there, too, in terms of holding him back, I see at times. Lamar is a tremendous passer, tremendous mm-hmm. processor, and was always that way in Louisville. And somehow, yeah, he was. you get out there, they were asking him to move the wide, asking to move the wide receiver. And I think that's where now... You see the narrative with the pushback on Justin Fields where people are saying, you know, you don't want to tear down Mac Jones, but we're trying to leap Jones, leapfrog Mac Jones above Justin Fields. And you go back and you look at the tape. I, I think people had enough of quarterbacks. And I, I'll just be blunt with you. Black quarterbacks have been scouted for years around this league. Oh, Doug yeah, Farrar absolutely. from USA Today wrote a great piece on this. And, and I, I would recommend anybody go find Doug Farrar and read his piece on Twitter about the history of, I don't know, it's not racism, but it, it is that just that fundamental miscalculation 
and, and the, the inability to see these quarterbacks as quarterbacks. It was so frustrating for years. You get a Steve McNair, you get a Cam Newton, you get a Donovan McNabb, and still Lamar Jackson comes along and we're asking him, maybe he's a better fit at receiver. It was ridiculous. But yeah, I, I could have seen that real good fit too. DJ Moore worked out nicely, but uh, hey, you know, like I said, if Justin Fields is there at eight, uh, you're, you're, you're tempting me, man. <laughs> I would love to have him here. <laughs> well, see, well, I've got another temptation here for you because uh, Florida tight end Kyle Pitts mentioned that he had spoke to head coach Matt Rule and that they've had plans to speak again. If Pitts is on the board along, say, with, I don't know, Oregon left tackle Panay Sewell, who does John yeah. take? You got, you got uh, Pitts this is the there, one an offensive yeah. weapon, Sewell, a, a tackle they desperately need. Who would you take? That's a tough one, man. It's a fun problem to have, though, right? I mean, they, if they're sitting there and they've taken their time and made the decision, you know, look, these quarterbacks are off the board. Uh, maybe Trey Lance will still be there, but they've decided Lance might not be their guy. And they're at eight, and all of a sudden, Panay, Panay Sewell or Christian Slater have miraculously fallen in their lap, and miraculously somehow, with maybe a run of wide receivers, maybe Waddle sneaks in the top six, and, you know, mm-hmm. Smith, uh, Chase. Obviously, there's going to be a run on receivers at some point. Draft night's going to be fascinating. If Pitt slides to eight two, if it's between him and those and those offensive linemen, right now, yes, man, I go with Pitts, and here's why: there are still some guys in free agency you can get. In the door, Villanueva comes to mind. Mitchell Schwartz. Uh, you've got people. Wagner's another left. You can bring guys in that are serviceable enough to patch that up. I, I know people don't like the idea of doing that, but the plus side of that is you get a six foot six monster out there, dominating corners, slot corners, linebackers, and safeties, and it would be remarkable to watch him grow within a Joe Brady offense. So yeah, at this point, I, and if, uh, one more thing, it's a, it's a deep draft as far as left tackles go. So you Any, can end up getting a guy in the second round that could end up being your guy. I'd go with Pitts if he's on the board, Desmond. I really would. This really just popped in my head, but I, I, I just realized that um, I think it was Washington. They cut Thaddeus Moss, the, uh, the former LSU tight end that had played under Joe Brady's system and son of Randy Moss, who a lot of our listeners here are familiar with because he played high school ball here in North Carolina. Um, down in Charlotte, will you give a flyer yeah. on, on Moss, or you think he's too slow for the NFL, or would you bring him in knowing he's familiar I, with Brady's offense? Well, a little, but uh, let me. I I was I was thinking about it earlier, but I, I'm just actually reading this now. This just broke a little while ago. That oh, looks boy. like the Bing, the Bing, <laughs> the Bengals the Bengals have put in a waiver claim for him. So ah. it looks like and that makes sense with Joe Burrow. Obviously, yeah, that would be that a great sense for him. But if yeah. I'm reading this right, uh, yeah, it looks like he's off the board. Yeah, Moss would have been, again, not the most athletic guy, believe it or not, even though his genes are good in the regard. Right. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's, a different, he's, a, he's a different type of tight end than a Pitts. Pitts, I don't even think, is a tight end. You know, Billy said on the pod, he's more like Mike Evans, and I could totally see that. Like a Julius Peppers version of Mike Evans. Yeah, imagine Julius guy Peppers who playing can, tight end for a decade. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I He does. He wrote <laughs> He reminds me of Pep, man, with that wingspan and the ability to just dominate at his position. Uh, he he's a man amongst uh, kids out there. So yeah, um, yeah, Thaddeus Moss would would have been a, a pretty good fit with Joe Brady, but I I think that's off the table. 
And and then uh, really quick before I let you go, John, uh, the Panthers have been busy. I wanted to touch on the defensive side of the ball because that's where the Panthers have done a lot of their damage in free agency so far. Uh, on defense, ESPN's projected front seven for the Panthers' 4-3 base defense, although they are kind of running a 3-3 like hybrid type thing under Phil Snow last year a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, newly signed defensive end Hassan Reddick, uh, Mike Pasulik at defensive tackle, second year. Top pick Derek Brown at defensive tackle, emerging defensive end star Brian Burns. You got your tour Montos Gross, Marquise Haynes, uh, newly signed Morgan Fox, Gravion Roy is back. They signed AJ Boye, who uh, has made a Pro Bowl at yeah. the end of last week. Which one of those defensive additions are you the most excited about, and why? Uh, Hassan Reddick. I mean, it's it's I not know any of these other guys, but he by far is the most exciting piece when you put on the tape with Reddick. Uh, we made a little vignette of his sacks from last year on our on our Twitter page, and he had five against New York Giants. So that that can end up being sort of a a sign of a fluky type season. But then you look at the other seven and a half sacks he picked up, and these were impact sacks. These were sacks in key situations, several fumbles, strip sacks. He gets the ball, and he's just like Brian Burns in that regard. He's got great lean, great fundamentals in terms of getting around the edge, good bend. And he's a prototypical flex player for Phil Snow. I think what you'll see, the 4-3 front, again, in base situations, you're going to face that against run-heavy teams. And again, I, I would say run-heavy teams because New Orleans and Tampa are still very run-heavy. When you look at how they operate with bigger personnel, you need a good 4-3 base. But also, you're going to have to mix in sub-packages. So in terms of nickels, uh, running maybe a three-man front there with... Yeah, I don't know if you can run Morgan Fox on the outside, on the edge, get your Derek Brown monster inside, running three tanker shaded a little bit, and then you can uh, you could put a number of people at the other edge there. Uh, Brian Burns uh, would, would maybe be a sort of a hybrid backer. One thing we talked about, though, on our show earlier, Crown Score with Kevin Stewart, Reggie Walker, Reggie made the comment that Brian Burns is at his best with his hand in the dirt. And I agree. The more they can do that with Burns, Reddick shows the same flashes as well. Um, I, I'm I'm excited just as a as a film junkie, not even a fan, just looking at the film next year with 43 on one side, if he keeps his number, by the way, Reddick, and then 53 on the other side. I think it's going to make quarterbacks miserable in this conference. So yeah, good signing by Carolina. I can't wait. Uh, we're uh, a week or so away from the draft. This is the time of the year where every team is 0 and 0 uh, and optimistic about the year follow john on twitter at one panther place uh for the latest in film uh study news from the panthers uh podcast panthers related uh everything that john's doing over there is fantastic i appreciate you coming on today man thanks for letting me ramble a little bit desmond it's always fun man appreciate you <laughs> coming up voice of the charlotte hornets sam farber joins us the hornets staying afloat without their top stars how are they doing this we'll find out next on franchise players Back to Franchise Players. I am your host, Desmond Johnson. We are your home for sports in the triad. Joining me right now is the voice of the Charlotte Hornets Radio Network, Sam Farber. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Sam Farber Live. Sam, what's going on, brother? How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Desmond. So no LaMelo Ball, no Gordon Hayward. 
yet the Hornets have won like eight of their past 11 games. What in the world are the Hornets doing, in your opinion, to stay afloat in the crowded Eastern Conference? Well, it's a testament to James Borrego and his coaching staff that they've been able to adapt on the fly here because that's an awful lot of offense to be missing for an extended period of time. But they've doubled down on their defensive assignments. Uh, they have, you know, kind of pulled back a little bit in terms of trying to force the issue. LaMelo Ball and got just incredible instincts for stealing the basketball. Uh, but the team has been a little bit stronger in the half court uh, without taking as many chances. And, you know, they're finding a way. And that's what you have to do in today's NBA. The Hornets are not alone dealing with injuries. We just saw the Atlanta Hawks. They were decimated by injuries and found a way to get a W on yeah. Sunday. Milwaukee had all five starters out from the time the Hornets played them. Uh, no one's going to feel bad for the Hornets. They're going to try and take advantage. Uh, but so far, so good for Charlotte. They remain in the top six. Who's the one guy that you've noticed that stepped up the most with no LaMelo or uh, Hayward in the lineup in your eyes? Well, Miles Bridges has been tremendous since entering the starting lineup. He's averaging a little over 18 points per game over that four-game stretch. It's a bit of a risk because he is so explosive off the bench. You kind of want to have someone in that second unit who can carry the flag there and, and make some inroads even when the starters are off the floor. But Miles has been spectacular. In addition to being a consistent scorer, he shot the three pretty darn well as a starter or as a reliever for that matter. And then that dunk that he put on Clint Capella uh, that's mm -hmm. going to be on highlight reels forever. I'm glad you brought up Mr. Bridges because actually my next question <laughs> had to do with him and that dunk. Um, Twitter's been a buzz the past 24 hours uh, from the dunk that uh, Miles Bridges had versus the Hawks on Sunday uh, in a losing effort. But I saw a tweet where someone wondered aloud what Sam Farber's call sounded like on that dunk. What was the was that the best dunk you've seen so far this year? Ooh, yes, uh, it's closer than you might think because I think Terry Rozier's dunk on Kevin Durant was also oh I forgot about that yeah <laughs> oh my gosh but, but this one you know to do it on a shot blocker um, you know we all know how great I mean I guess you, you know you got to put it into context a little bit I mean Terry Rozier's came in a big win an early win for this team it was against a marquee player that was a, that was a signature dunk no doubt about it. But the fact that Miles, given all his leaping ability, was able to do it against one of the top five shot blockers in the game today, yeah. <laughs> I think it's else. It kind of came out of nowhere, too. Like, it, I mean, I didn't, I know Miles has, you know, hops, but that was like a different level. Like, he jumped off a trampoline kind of type of dunk. And you're right, it's going to live in infamy. These Hornets this year in particular, it feels like they live on Sports Center's top 10. It's crazy as a Hornets fan to see them like every other day, it felt like. You would see LaMelo giving like an alley-oop to, to Miles or something going on, a game winner, something. But the Hornets feel like they're just like a perpetual stay in SportsCenter's top 10 right now. What's the best dunk you've ever seen with your own eyes, like in person? Because I know you've called a lot of different things. You've been on both coasts. You've called a lot of different levels of basketball. Is there a particular dunk that just sticks in your mind whenever someone asks you greatest dunks, the ones that you've seen in person that you can recall? You know, I can't recall one better than Miles. I mean, that that was that was nasty. It really and, was. <laughs> you know, his explosiveness, we have seen it numerous times. And he's dunked on some pretty good players, pretty long players. The one on Chris Boucher uh, for Toronto, that was a nasty dunk as well coming off the baseline. But this one, I mean, you could not have put Clint Capella in a better defensive position. He's sitting there, center of the lane. 
He can see Miles coming the whole way. He's not brushed up against a defender or screen. You know, he he is there. He's yeah. ready to block the shot. And Miles just plain jumped over him. And credit to Clint Capella, too, for standing in there. Because I think too often, you know, we put all this noise on shop block. Like, oh, you got dunked on. His job is to stand in there and try and yeah. block the shot. So he gave it his best effort. Miles just climbed a little bit taller. And, uh, and he's got a unique ability, man. He's got a unique ability. The thing I hate the most when I see it is when a player on defense decides to to commit to trying to block a dunk, and as they're midair, realizing they're not going to be able to do it, so they try to duck while they're still jumping in midair to basically get out of the poster. But it makes the poster even worse when they do something like that. So shout out to Clint Capella, he he ate that, and uh, he's going to be on posters for a long time now. Um, you mentioned that Miles is the the main guy you think of that stepped up his game. Uh, with the injuries to LaMelo Ball and Gordon Hayward, what do you think happens when uh, these guys start coming back? Because Miles is basically playing the three, correct? And that's Gordon's position. How do you get Miles into the starting lineup? Because it sounds like he's kind of turning into a starter in terms of caliber of player with uh, with these minutes he's getting right now. Is that creating a, a issue down the road for James Borrego, you think? Well, he was a starting caliber player last season, too, and, and has been this entire – he averaged 13 points a game last year. That's a solid starter's number uh, on any team. So, you know, I think this is this is part of what you do when you're building up a franchise. This is why I, I don't always understand teams that want to just have a fire sale all the time and constantly tear everything down to the foundation and then start looking for five new players. It, it takes time – to build a playoff roster, you have to find five guys that can play starters minutes, play specific roles. You need no doubt an all-star or two, if uh, probably three these days, if you're going to compete for an NBA title, and then you need guys to come off the bench. And when you're constantly tearing everything down, you're not just looking for a guy. You're not just looking for LaMelo. You're looking for all the other starters as well. So, you know, with what miles contributes to this team, I think the, the special thing about him is he has shown an ability to be explosive and contribute a lot of points and rebounds as a starter and off the bench. Keep this in mind. He's the team leader in double doubles, and he's had eight of them off the bench. So he's been wow. able to be this explosive when he's getting 30 plus minutes a game as a starter, or if he's closer to the 20 to 25 that you normally see for guys coming off the bench. So he's a luxury. I think his unselfishness is his greatest attribute. And that's saying something because the man can jump like none other. But his ability to be unselfish, to take a back seat in terms of the starting lineup so that Gordon Hayward can go out there and be the star that he is for this team and still find ways to contribute in meaningful ways is the reason why this team has been so good. They're treading water right now without the three starter or the three stars that we've uh, been talking about them missing. You know, Gordon Hayward, LaMelo Ball, Malik Monk, they're not going to come back and go all three on the bench. Two of them are definitely going to go in the starting lineup, and that means someone's got to come out. And Miles has shown an ability to be explosive in both roles, and that's what makes him so dangerous. Follow him on Twitter at Sam Farber Live, play-by-play voice of the Charlotte Hornets radio network. Sam Farber joining us here on Franchise Players. Um, Charlotte Observer columnist Scott Fowler, I thought, had a great article on Sunday basically asking the question, what do these Hornets need to do to convince the Hornets fans that they aren't the quote unquote, same old Hornets. And what would you say to that? Because this being your first year calling games for the Hornets, uh, I, I feel like you get to come in with a fresh slate. You don't, you don't, you're not really uh, uh, hampered by thoughts of the past. Like everything is fresh and new to you and in front of you. What would you say in terms of 
what did the Hornets need to do in your mind to convince the, you know, the Hornets fans that have been here since the eighties when they first began that this isn't the same Hornets team. That's just going to be a, you know, seventh, eighth seed. If they get in the playoffs, get swept out, uh, nothing to be excited about. They're going to mess up next year. That's kind of the malaise that's been around this franchise for a while. And this year is the first year in a long while, maybe since they returned back to Charlotte and changed the name back to Hornets, where it felt like, and it does still feel like, there's a level of optimism around this team that hasn't been felt since really the 90s Muggsy Bogues, Larry Johnson, Zoe uh, Hornets squads back then. W- what do you think this Hornets team just needs to do to convince these Hornets fans that they are not the same Hornets teams that they have been accustomed to to seeing and putting their hopes into? Well, there's very little that the Hornets can do, you know, tomorrow or, you know, in the next 48 hours. This is going to be a long-term thing to dispel the reputation that, you know, is earned uh, over over several years. I mean, it, the, the record is what it is. The Hornets haven't been in the playoffs since 2016. They haven't won a series in the playoffs since 2002. The only way to get rid of those numbers is to change them. So in the context that Scott is talking about, I think it's make the playoffs. I think it's take the next step. Uh, it's easy. And I think it's a little unfair to say, well, they have to win a playoff series in order to get that out of the way. They haven't been in the playoffs since 2016. It's hard to win if you're not at the dance. So right. I think getting there first is goal number one. And that's been the stated goal of this team, and they seem to be well on their way to doing that. But I think from the fans' perspective, and as you said, I, I'm a little bit of an outsider still. I'm still learning the team and the fan base and the market. But I do feel that there is already something different. These are not your uh, you know, recent additions or previous additions of the Charlotte Hornets. This is a new team. This is a team that is routinely on Sports Center. This is a team that routinely is talked about as the league pass favorite for national NBA personalities and just influencers across the league in general. This is a very popular team, and that was not always the case. There are certain franchises, you know this well, Desmond, there's certain mm-hmm. franchises in every sport that when they come to town, they're not a draw. They're just right. a team on the schedule. It's a reason to go see your team. And there's teams in every sport that when they publicize their team, they say, hey, come out Tuesday because LeBron's coming, not come out Tuesday and see what Miles Bridges is going to do. This team has made that transition to being something that everyone wants to see across the NBA. The, the people who are really tuned in the NBA can't get enough, couldn't get enough of LaMelo Ball. What is he going to do next? They want to see what Miles Bridges can do. They want to see how many points and threes Terry Rozier and Devontae Graham are going to combine for. They want to see the impact that Gordon Hayward has in a starring role once again, finally healthy once again. So this team, I think, has already, in my opinion, made that transition. But from what Scott is talking about, I think it, it's fair to ask the question, when are the Hornets going to you know, prove that they've taken that next step? I think it's unfair, though, for them to, to expect for them to somehow prove it in the next two weeks because the playoffs aren't here yet. You know, the magic number is, I think, 14 now. 14, yeah, I believe so. If they, if they get in the playoffs, they've proven it. They've taken that next step. And then the question is, will they take the following step the following season and make it around further in the playoffs if they don't do it already this year, which I'm not counting them out. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because of the jumbled mess in the Eastern Conference. You know, that 
uh, that game against the Hawks uh, that Bridges had that dunk in. Uh, they lose that game. They came into that game uh, in the fourth spot in the Eastern Conference. And with, I think, Boston won. Uh, with the Hawks winning, it pushed the Hornets down two spots to six, you know, after one loss. So, like, it's just kind of like it's super jumbled up. I know the Hornets would rather avoid that seven through 10 play in area. Uh, and I, I would imagine they would love to, you know, secure that fourth spot just to be able to to host the playoff series, uh, which they haven't done. Maybe I don't even remember the last time the Hornets hosted a playoff series uh, with all this going on. Should James Borrego, head coach, head coach of the Hornets, be seriously considered for coach of the year in the NBA? All the injuries, everything going on, yet he's keeping the Hornets afloat. And they're, it's like you said, they're treading water with two of their biggest stars missing and aren't going to be back for a couple more weeks, if even that. Would you consider Borrego a top uh, coach of the year candidate in the NBA, or is that just the, the homerism talking to me here? No, I, I, I think he should be. I mean, I think... For, for me, and I don't have a vote, but if I were voting on Coach of the Year, I would look specifically at start of the season, where do the experts think you are going to end up in terms of win total? Not place in the standings, win total. How many wins do they think you're going to get? And then fast forward to the end of the year, what is your record? Hornets were, based off most national publications, and I'm not saying I agreed with them, I didn't. But most of them said the Hornets were between a 24 and 26 win team for this season. We're at 27 already. They're playing Mm -hmm. with house money based off everyone else's expectations. So if this team ends up being a 35, 36, maybe 38 win team, of course they should be considered for it. Now, I do think Coach Snyder in Utah, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of coaches out there that have done a spectacular job. Thibodeau with the Knicks. Yeah, Yeah. there's a couple. Memphis. Um, you know, there, there's quite a few teams that deserve a lot of praise. Heck, Nate McMillan in Atlanta, look at that turnaround. Yeah. My gosh, they're 15 and five since he took over. You know, I don't think he's going to get it. You know, if you're not going to give LaMelo Ball, uh, you know, rookie of the year because he's had a truncated season, then you certainly can't give Nate McMillan coach of the year. But should he be in the conversation? Yeah, he should be. I, I think JB, though, absolutely is deserving. Uh, this team has just done a tremendous job dealing with an awful lot of adversity with injuries and with lower expectations from the national media. They just don't care. They're going to keep fighting and find a way into the postseason, it looks like. Being around the team, traveling with the team as they're on the road, being around them as they're doing home games, what's the vibe you've caught in terms of the potential return for LaMelo Ball? Because I, I have noticed whenever they are talking about LaMelo, they're very careful to not say he's out for the season so it seems like there's optimism that he may be able to return maybe right before the playoffs uh what have you been sensing or hearing from being around the team in terms of the potential of a lamello ball return well the door is open there's no question about that you know i i was a little surprised when i saw the national word come out that he was done for the season uh, you know, broken wrist uh, or a fractured bone in your wrist, you know, there, there's a wide variety that that entails. There's a lot of bones in there. Um, you know, once he went through the surgery and they put out the timeline four weeks to reevaluate, you know, I, I'm with you. I think, you know, the door is open. I'm, I don't want to assume anything. The only thing I'll assume is this. This franchise is not going to do anything to jeopardize the long-term health and viability of LaMelo Ball. There's no question about that. Outside of that, you know, it's a it's a fractured bone. We saw this with Gordon Hayward. We saw this with Cody Zeller. It's a fracture. You take the time off for it to heal. You rehab. When you're ready to go, you're ready to go. Uh, it's not the same thing as, say, a torn ACL where there's a given amount of time to heal and then you have to continually strengthen up these muscles again and these ligaments 
so that they operate the same way or else you're at risk of tearing it all over again if you come back too quick. From what I have seen of other players when they fracture a bone, when it's healed, it's healed. And you only fracture it again if you fracture it again. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't think the Hornets are willing to do anything remotely close to risking the long-term health of LaMelo Ball. But when he's healthy to go, he's going to be the first one clamoring to get back on that court. So, uh, you know, the timeline is cutting it close. I don't think they're going to do it for the purposes of having him, you know, placate rookie of the year voters or anything like that. But I do think there's valuable experience for him and his team to have from competing for and in the playoffs. And if he has an opportunity to get there, uh, I have no doubt he's going to do everything he can to get back on the floor. You, just, you were speaking of experience, and uh, we'll end it on this note here. The, the Hornets facing the Lakers Tuesday night without LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Uh, both are out a few more weeks with various injuries. Uh, the Hornets, we talked about it earlier in the segment, the Hornets faced and defeated a depleted Bucks team last week, uh, lost to a depleted Hawks team on Sunday. How important is it for a young team like these Hornets to learn to win the games they're expected to? Because normally they would not be expected to win against the defending NBA champions and the Los Angeles Lakers coming to town. However, with them missing two of the top five players in the entire league and the way the Hornets have been playing, it's it wouldn't be too much of a surprise if the Hornets won the game against the Lakers. How important is it for them to build that chemistry uh, to win the games you're supposed to win? Well, that infers that they're supposed to win against the Lakers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when I said it, it felt weird. <laughs> I, I don't think that that's an assumption. I don't think they were supposed to win against Atlanta. I don't think they were supposed to win against Milwaukee. You know, those teams are loaded up to make the playoffs and are very deep. And even though they were also dealing with injuries, keep it. You know, we can't say the team is overperforming because they're doing all this stuff without Gordon Hayward, LaMelo Ball, and Malik Monk, and then say, well, why haven't they won this game? Because the other teams, they're still missing their guys. So, you know, this is an uphill climb for the Hornets night in and night out with very few exceptions. I think the Oklahoma City, yeah, that was a game they were supposed to win. Oklahoma City was so shorthanded. I think other teams out there that are really struggling right now, you can make a similar argument for, but I don't think the Lakers is one of them. And the biggest reason why is Andre Drummond. Uh, that guy is a problem. The Hornets have had a difficult time all throughout the season dealing with legit, elite, all-star caliber centers, of which Drummond is most definitely one. If we rewind the clock all the way back to opening night, Hornets are in Cleveland taking on the Cavs. A lot of fans are thinking, all right, you know, the, the Hornets got Gordon Hayward. This team should be ready to go. And they lost. They gave up, you know, they were minus 20 in the second quarter to Cleveland. Andre Drummond was dominant out there. He had a double-double, 14 points, 14 boards, and that was that. And uh, so, you know, him being on the Lakers alone, I'm not going to say he's scarier than LeBron James and Anthony Davis, but he's a very scary player. Um, And and, and it's a a difficult one for the Hornets to deal with. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I think it's going to be a great game. This Hornets team has been so competitive, but – if they win it, it's a good win. If they lose it, I don't think you look at this Hornets team and say this is one that they gave away, similar to the Atlanta game. <laughs> that Atlanta team was playing extremely well and went out there and won that game. Credit to them. I think the last time the Hornets legitimately lost a game that they should have won, I mean, you got to go back a long, long way. I'm, I'm going through this schedule right now trying to find one, and I'm having a hard time doing it, you know, Maybe, maybe the Bulls game January 22nd, although, you know, they were coming off a long layoff and and hadn't played in a while. The Bulls were in rhythm Uh, before that. I mean, 
shoot, maybe the Memphis game on New Year's Day where John Morant wasn't there. That's uh, game five of the season. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the Hornets are playing really, really well. But in the NBA, everyone's pretty good. Um, and, you know, there's no gimmies out there. Um, but to your point, I think the Hornets have done a good job in games where they have been an overwhelming favorite, even though those are few and far between. And the good news for them is that the schedule is really in their favor in this final month of the season. They're going to be at home an awful lot. They're going to see a lot less of Boston come May and a lot more of Washington and Detroit. And those teams are struggling right now. So the opportunity is there for the Hornets to seal this well before we get to that final road trip of the season. Um, But this team has certainly put itself in a good spot. Follow on Twitter at Sam Farber Live. That's the voice of the Charlotte Hornets Radio Network, play-by-play man Sam Farber, joining us here on Franchise Players. Appreciate you, brother. Have a great call tonight against the Lakers, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Sounds good, Desmond. Hope to see everyone at Spectrum Center soon. And if you can't make it uh, for today's game against the Lakers, remember, limited capacity, but there are seats available for games. Maybe you want to join us tomorrow for the Cleveland game or come see Damian Lillard on Sunday in the Portland Trail. Come out and see the Hornets. Go to Hornets.com for all your ticket info. Yeah, I might have to uh, make something happen for Sunday. I might have to drive down to Charlotte and check out the Hornets. It's like the first time in a long time I've wanted to go down and actually watch the Hornets in person. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Thank you, my man. We'll be talking to you soon. Uh, Coming up, more franchise players on Tobacco Road Sports Radio.